With me this morning is one of our anthem students, Livy, and she is going to read our teaching text for today. So let's listen in. John 18, 19 through 24. The high priest questions Jesus. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, what I teach is widely known because I have preached regularly in synagogues and the temple. I have been heard by people everywhere and I teach nothing in private that I have not said in public. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who have heard me. They know what I said. One of the temple guards standing there struck Jesus on the face. Is that, why the, to, is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must give evidence for it. Should you hit a man for telling the truth? Then Anna's bound Jesus and sent him to Capus, the high priest, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Livy, and uh, good morning, everyone. Doan, as, uh, as you were talking about uh, casting your anxieties on God, I was drawn back to earlier this week as I was looking into my backyard and the snow was melting. And all of the little gifts of love that our 90-pound golden retriever had left for us began coming up through the snow this week uh, and uh, realized the children are going to want to go outside soon and uh, I have some work that needs to get done this weekend. Uh, well, it's so good to be with you all this morning in this space and if you're joining us online, it's good to be with you as well. I want to invite you to come with me uh, to 101 East 13th Street in Holland, Michigan, to Western Theological Seminary and the Hebrew Classroom. Because at Western Seminary and in the Hebrew program, we believe that learning a language and learning Hebrew is more than simply memorization. It's more than simply understanding how to parse out a particular sentence. It's more than simply vocab. But it's about discipling yourself to the language. It's about connecting with it, about it taking root in your heart and in your life and in your faith. And I want to bring that into our space here this morning. And so we often begin our class with the simple greeting, Shalom Talmidim, which simply means hello students or hello disciples. And the disciples respond, Shalom. So, Shalom Talmidim. Well done. You've already passed the first semester. Uh, and then we often move into a, a set of instructions, ways to engage our body. And as the teachers, uh, we, we try to model some of these things out. Uh, so that way, it's, it's sort of a Simon Says, right? There's, there's a discipleship that's happening here. So, Talmidim, Ge'u Barosh, Ge'u Barosh. Ge'u berosh. 
טוב מאוד, טוב מאוד, גאו בראש, גאו בבטן, גאו ברגליים, גאו בראש, גאו בבטן, גאו רגליים, טוב מאוד, קומו, קומו, טוב מאוד, טוב מאוד, קומו. טוב מאוד. ועכשיו, קפסו. קפסו. טוב מאוד. שבו. טוב מאוד. Great job. Well done. So we introduce words, modeling them, showing them with the hope that eventually these things begin to take root. That these things become a part of sort of life and formation and that ultimately that it becomes a place where uh, in understanding the language, uh, we understand ourselves and we begin to understand the God who reveals God's self through language, through the scriptures in a completely new and different way, uh, that we become disciples and that we become in close relationship with God. And it's this kind of discipleship, a discipleship of intimacy and love, that John's gospel invites us to understand, invites us to reflect on and to see in this story that we are encountering today. And so we're, we're towards the end of John's gospel. We're in chapter 18, Uh, verses 19 through 24. And this story is unique to John's gospel. It doesn't appear in any of the other gospels. And it's unique in the way that it presents this story as well. What it's inviting us into, what it's trying to show us, what it's trying to tell us about who Jesus is and who the disciples are, and therefore what it means to be the church. And so where do we find ourselves in this story? Well, it's the, the waning hours of Jesus' sort of earthly ministry and his life. It's coming to an end. And uh, it's late at night. And Jesus is brought to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Caiaphas later sends Jesus bound to Ant, or uh, Annas, the high priest sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so we have this, this, who is the high priest? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? Yes, it is both. You see, uh, the Romans, when they took power, they began appointing officials and appointing people for high profile positions. And so they would appoint who the high priest was. And Annas was appointed the high priest by Quirinius, the governor. Now you may recognize that name, Quirinius, from Luke's gospel. Uh, early on in the story of Luke's gospel, in one of sort of our, our well-known passages, particularly around Christmas time, well, it came to pass that Caesar Augustus decided to take a census of the entire Roman world. And this happened when Quirinius was governor 
of Syria. And so Quirinius appoints Annas to be the high priest. Well, something happens where Annas is removed from power, removed from his place, his position, about nine years later. And now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is installed as the high priest. Talk about an awkward family dynamic at dinner, right? Uh, but just because Caiaphas was now the high priest and kind of the face of the franchise doesn't mean that Annas didn't still hold power. In fact, he still carried an incredible amount of weight in the community. Because in Jewish tradition, a high priest was elected for life. It was like a Supreme Court seat or like the Pope where you were there until you died. And so although Caiaphas is sort of the person out front, Annas still has a lot of power. And so Jesus is brought to him. And here, in sort of this secret, sort of uh, backdoor trial or interrogation, Jesus is questioned. And a lot of what is happening here goes against sort of the judicial process and precedence that was set. Uh, it's in secret. It's not in the temple in public during daytime, but it's at night. It's rushed. It's right before a festival, which often didn't happen. Uh, there are no witnesses that are testifying uh, against Jesus or for Jesus. And then lastly, we see that, that Jesus is struck, that he's hit while he's in their care. All of this points to this sort of being a haphazard kind of interrogation where they're really just trying to put the full court press on Jesus, hoping that he'll, he'll slip up, hoping that he'll say something that they can use against him with Pilate. And so they move to ask him a pretty interesting question, in my opinion. Unlike uh, in Mark or Matthew's gospel, where witnesses are brought in, uh, to testify that Jesus said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And unlike in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is asked, are you the Messiah? Here in John's gospel, Jesus is asked an entirely different question. Tell us about your disciples and your teaching. Tell us about your disciples and your teaching. And I wonder uh, if there is uh, something we can unpack here, if there's layers to what is being asked. I think on the surface, this is a very pragmatic question, right? How many disciples do you have, Jesus? How many people are going to be upset that we've arrested you and that we're, we're sort of rushing through this thing in the middle of the night and we're moving you to be uh, put on trial before Pilate? How many people do you have following you? And then second, throughout John's gospel, the religious establishment and the religious leaders are painted as a group of people who know about Jesus but don't know Jesus. They know about him, 
but they don't know him. There's no connection. There's no, no love. There's no intimacy. Or there's, there's nothing close between the religious establishment and Jesus. And John begins to draw this out for us early on in his gospel. In the first chapter of his gospel, in the prologue, you may remember these words. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so, again, throughout John's gospel, there is this theme where the religious leaders just don't get it. And in fact, it's often the people on the outside, the people on the margins, that Jesus invites in close to understand who he is. The Samaritan woman, the blind man, Mary, drawing these people in into close connection, and they begin to understand who he is. And the third thing that I think is at play here is that Jesus was a rabbi. And rabbis had two main things on their job description. Their first thing was to teach. And we see this throughout the gospel. Jesus is teaching. And he's calling people to follow his teaching. Jesus is interpreting uh, the scriptures He's interpreting what they mean and how to bring them into your life. And he's saying things like this in John's gospel. If you love me, keep my commands. And anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And if you keep my commands, you will remain in me. Jesus was a teacher. Last year, about this time, I was gifted a subscription to Masterclass, the online learning platform where experts teach their various subjects in really great short videos. And one of my favorite teachers is the Italian chef Massimo Boturo. And uh, his classes were some of my favorite. One, because of his joy and love for cooking. It just kind of comes through in what he's doing. And second, because I think he has really great taste of fashion and color. <laughs> right? He wears the Mars Hill black uniform really well. In fact, maybe we should see if he wants to be our mobilization and renewal pastor. I mean, I would be mobilized by Italian food. Anyone else? Yes. <laughs> it wouldn't take too much work. Now, in uh, the promo video, in the sort of like little snippet of here's what his class is all about, this is what Massimo says. He says, cooking is an act of love, and it's bigger and it's deeper. So you, 
you're going to explore where you come from. You're going to explore your memories. Your palate is going to talk to you and tell you where to go. I'm going to show you how to be free to imagine, to dream, to transfer emotion. Sign me up for that class. That is a teacher who is in love with his subject. That's a teacher who embodies what he is trying to teach and is inviting people to learn how to use their giftings to bring their love into cooking. He's showing people that cooking is an act of love. He's teaching people. So in some ways, Massimo is a rabbi. But rabbis didn't just teach. The second part of their job description was to make disciples. Now, if you've been around Mars Hill for a minute or two, you've heard us talk about rabbis and disciples. And you maybe have even heard a little something about dust of the rabbi. And one of the key biblical passages that talks about this relationship, what it means, what it looks like to be a disciple, the sort of radical transformation, invitation that happens in this relationship comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. You didn't think I wasn't going to not go to the Old Testament, did you? Come on now. You knew we were headed there at some point. And this is the story of the prophet Elijah calling the prophet Elisha to be his disciple. Again, it happens in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 19. And it says, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. So here, Elisha completely leaves his former life behind. There is no going back. He cannot go back to farming. He can't go back to tilling the land. He has completely given up, separated himself from that life and from that family and has now attached himself to Elijah. We see Jesus speaking of this particular episode with his own disciples when he says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for the kingdom. There is this complete separation when one becomes a disciple of their family and they enter into a new family and attach themselves to a completely new community. In uh, the oral tradition of the early rabbis, there was a saying that uh, suppose your rabbi and your father are both held captive. You ransom your rabbi first and then your father. So again, here we see that there is this complete reorientation when one becomes a disciple. That the relationship between rabbi and student is one of deep connection and intimacy. It's one of family. That it's more than just being an apprentice, more than being a protege, more than being a student. It's about being a family. And so to what or to whom have we attached ourselves? And here in John's gospel, this idea of the disciple being a part of the family begins to be played out again early on in chapter 1, where John says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That being one of Jesus' disciples is to be one of his children. And to be in a relationship of love that Jesus calls his disciples out of love and into love. Jesus loves his disciples and his disciples love him. And they're a family. And all of that... That particular relationship, that kind of intimacy in fidelity and faithfulness is what is coming into this particular story here in John. Where we see Jesus being questioned, interwoven with Peter's denials. In no other gospel are Peter's denials broken up. They're all happening one after another. But in John's gospel, we have this sort of side-by-side comparison happening. This meanwhile, this back and forth, this uh, what happens in modern cinematography where uh, a character is zoomed in on to get their reaction and their response to something else that someone just said or did. Right? We see this all the time happening uh, in our TV shows. And it's with this happening that we are to read Peter's denials in light of this story here. And this story in light of Peter's denials. And so here we are. Peter has already denied Jesus 
once. And as Troy pointed out last week, what's unique to the denials in the Gospel of John is that that Peter doesn't deny knowing Jesus. He denies that he's a disciple. He denies the unique relationship, the intimate, close relationship that he has with Jesus. And meanwhile, Jesus is being asked about his teaching and his disciples. And so you can begin to feel the tension in this scene. Peter has denied knowing Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to throw his disciples under the bus? Is he he going to deny even having disciples? What is Jesus going to say? Well, Jesus says a few things that I think are interesting. First, Jesus points to himself. Jesus points to himself. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Jesus is pointing to himself. And these three eyes, I did this, I did this, I did this, I think point us back to earlier in chapter 18, where we, again, we see Jesus saying, I am three times. Jesus is pointing to himself. And in some ways, I think what he's pointing to is that he is his teachings. He is his teachings, that in Jesus, that in his existence, in his life, we have the true revelation of God's saving love. And it's not dependent on anything he's said or any of the disciples that he's called to follow him. That even if Jesus didn't teach anything, Even if Jesus didn't call any disciples, it would not change the fact that in Jesus we have God's self-revelation to us. That in Jesus we have God in the flesh. And Jesus is in some ways saying, look to me. And yet, it is also true That Jesus does not desire to be who he is without his disciples. So Jesus points to himself and he points to his disciples. Notice what he says. Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. The people that would have heard Jesus the most people that would have had these conversations, that would have heard him opening the text again and again, would have heard him talking about this or that on the road, were his disciples. Jesus is pointing to his disciples. 
that in Jesus we see that God does not desire to be God without us. What an incredible love. What an incredible gift of grace that God does not desire to be God with us, without us. And I think this is one of the hidden themes of Lent. God moving heaven and earth, entering into the darkest places of human existence, even death itself, so that God would not be God without us. That even in death, God is with us. And so Jesus is asked about his teaching and his disciples. And he points to himself and he says, look to me. And yet he also points to his disciples and says, look to them. For they are the ones who have heard. They are the ones who have seen. They are the ones who understand. Which I think brings us to the church. That the church, the church is the body of disciples that first point to Jesus, that point to him and say, look at him. That as disciples, we don't look and we don't point to any sort of platform, any sort of pulpit, any sort of social media account, any sort of leader, but we point to Jesus. And Jesus alone. And we as the church listen for Jesus' call. We hear his voice and we know his words and we dwell in his love. And so in this season of Lent, I think this particular text continues to invite us to ask, to whom or to what are we attached? To whom or to what are we attached? Because as much as Jesus points to himself, he also invites us as his disciples to point to him. And so as we come to this table this morning, we come to this table because it is the place where we hear Jesus. We hear, we hear his words that say, come, all you who are thirsty, come and drink. Come, all you who are heavy laden, Come and rest. Come, all you who are hungry, for there is plenty to eat. And we come to this table to know Jesus. Because in receiving this bread and in receiving this cup, we experience God's great love for us again. 
And we come to this table to dwell with Jesus. Because Jesus is the host. Jesus is the one who prepares the table. Jesus is the one who dines with us at this feast. And so we come to this table because it's where we know Jesus. It's where we hear his voice. It's where we dwell with him. And it's the table to which we point as the church to say, there, there, at that table is where God continues to reveal God's self to us. A God of love, a God of mercy, and a God of grace who does not desire to be God without us. And so, uh, as we come to the table, we say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night that he was interrogated, the very night that he was denied, the very night that he pointed to himself and to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. And after they had eaten, he took the cup. And he said, this is the, the covenant, the promise in my blood. Whenever you take it, do so in remembrance of me. And so whenever we come to this table and we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we point to Jesus and we proclaim his death until he comes again. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, Come, Holy Spirit. Come, God, our Father. Invite us to your table once again and prepare it for us. A feast of love. That the bread that we eat and the cup from which we drink would be to us the body and blood of Christ. And that in receiving these elements, we would be joined with you. That we would experience closeness and intimacy with you. That we would be so tightly bound to who you are and your will that we would leave our former lives behind and enter into the life and the gift of being your children. And so God, just as grains have been gathered from many hills into one loaf, into one wafer, and grapes from many vines into one cup, may you too gather your people 
into your kingdom. That as you are one, we may be one. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so together we proclaim the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so we invite you, come, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come taste and see that God does not desire to be without you. Everything is ready.